while back. I was on the web looking for books on evangelism. And uh, to be honest with you, I was overwhelmed by the amount. There's a book called Conversational Evangelism, another called Lifestyle Evangelism, Grace Evangelism, Power Evangelism, Spirit-Led Evangelism, Real Evangelism, Honest Evangelism, Evangelism that changes lives, Evangelism that does not change lives. Tons of books, also tons of tracts and booklets on evangelism. Some that say the one thing you need to know. I heard of another that was entitled The 39 Steps to Salvation and many in between. There are five steps, six steps, four spiritual laws. There have been a lot of trees killed and a lot of ink that's been spilled over this subject. Lots of different methods that have been shared, many different approaches that have been taken when it comes to evangelism. There are training centers for evangelism. Some seminaries have evangelism departments with professors of evangelism. Lots of, of different books and tracts and pamphlets and methods and approaches when it comes to evangelism. And some are good, and as many of you know, some are not so good. But in this book we're studying through this year, the book of Acts, I think we see some wonderful principles for evangelism that should be highlighted and can and should be implemented by us today. There has not been a more successful ministry than the ministry of the early church in the first 30 years after Christ descended, when the church was first started. And we have seen already that there are so many things that we learn from the early ministry of Christ's disciples and Christ's church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch and the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and others. And this morning, as we look at the end of Acts 15 in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, at the beginning of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, we are going to see through his example, evangelism done right. Last week we talked about the Jerusalem Council and the incredible work that God did there to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And in our passage for today, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out again on mission with God on their second missionary journey. And so we're going to look at the beginning of this second missionary journey this morning. And what I want to do is I want to draw out some principles here for evangelism done right. I want us to look at some, some keys for effective evangelism. And here's the first thing. Number one, for evangelism to be effective, one must have a heart for it. They must have a heart for it. Like with, with anything, if your heart is not in evangelism, you're going to struggle. Paul was passionate about mission ministry. His heart was to know Christ and to make Christ known. Look at the first part of verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return. Let's get back to work, Paul sang. 
Let's get back out there. And, and though the fruit from their first missionary journey was probably motivation for Paul, more than that, Paul just delighted in doing God's will, no matter the results. Because you remember on their first missionary journey, though they saw much fruit, they had seen lives changed and churches started during their first mission trip. They had also been chased by angry mobs of people. They had been confronted by many who opposed their message and Paul had been stoned and drug outside of the city and left for dead. This was a costly work, yet though that was the case, that didn't cause Paul to hesitate in the least bit. Paul was driven by this desire to preach Christ. And what moved Paul? What what motivated him? Well, the mercy that God had shown him. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. Paul makes it clear in this passage that the love of Christ and the work that he accomplished at Calvary is to be our motivation for ministry. The fact that God is forever mine, believers. The fact that our chains are gone. He also said in 2 Corinthians 4 that if the gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost. Paul Paul knew that if he didn't speak, People would not hear and they would not respond to it. So he was a motivated man. He was a passionate man, always on the move for Christ, driven by his love and his great sacrifice and driven by a desire to see the wicked forsake their ways and turn to Christ. Believers, do you have this kind of passion? Does the love of Christ control you? Does his great sacrifice and the work he accomplished at Calvary move you to minister? Do you realize that the gospel is hid from your unbelieving friends and family and that it is your role to share and show Christ to them and share with them about how the the gospel is the best news in the world? Maybe if you're honest this morning, you would say no. But you want to have this kind of passion. You do. You want to have a heart to make Christ known. You want to have a heart for evangelism. You want to be motivated by Christ's love and and his great sacrifice. You want to have a heart for those who don't know Jesus. Listen, a passion like this is a supernatural work that God does in us by his Holy Spirit through his word. Passion like this, a heart like this for the lost, and a heart for ministry like Paul has comes when our lives are lost in Christ. When we can truly say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the way that happens is by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The more time we spend growing in our knowledge of who God is, through his word and the more time we spend gazing into the glory of Christ through his word the more time we spent on our knees in prayer to God the more we will become conformed into the image of Jesus that's why we do all that we can here to emphasize the importance of home discipleship and 
Bible study because your family time and your time spent alone with God in prayer and in his word is what makes all the difference in your life spiritually. So for evangelism to be effective, it happens when God's people have a heart for it. Second, for evangelism to be effective, it should not be divorced from discipleship. Now let me highlight that point. Very, very important. I love this. Look at verse 36. It says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed, that's past tense, the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, this is very significant. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about different gifts that Christ gave the church. And he said he gave the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And Paul was an apostle. He was a prophet. He was evangelist. Though he did teach and, and shepherd, he was normally not in one church for any extended period of time, maybe one to two years at the most. There were others like James in Jerusalem who were shepherds and teachers in one church for their ministry. Paul was on the go from one place to another proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So he was more of an evangelist. And that word, though mentioned three times in Scripture, is used a lot in our world today. And it has a meaning that is different from what we see in the Scriptures. Today, when we think of an evangelist, we think of someone who travels from place to place, stays a few nights in, in one spot, has a handful of evangelistic sermons. He calls for a response and then he leaves those who do respond in the care of the local churches. We think of a person really removed from discipleship, don't we? And I'm not ragging on the evangelist in here today because I know there are some that work in connection with the local church to make sure follow-up and discipleship happens. What I'm saying here is that the, the picture that we get of an evangelist from the New Testament is different from that. What we see from Paul and Timothy and others is different. They were evangelists, and they saw it as their responsibility, not just to escort people to Christ, but establish them in truth and equip them for ministry. When Paul's writing to Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus at the time, when he writes 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, he calls for Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And what is the work of an evangelist? 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, all the time. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Discipleship is not divorced from evangelism. Paul demonstrates that for us over and over again. When he leaves on his second missionary journey, where does he go first? Africa? Does he set sail for the Americas to a place where nobody's been? He's got the whole world out there. Where does he go? Back to Galatia. Back through Derby and Lystra and Iconium. Why? He's already been there. There's already Christians there. There's already churches there. Why go back? Because Paul understood that discipleship is not divorced from evangelism. The two go hand in hand. You know where he goes on his third missionary journey? First? You know where he goes first? 
Acts 18, 22 through 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia. He goes back again. A, a third time. He, he didn't just go through an area once and lead hundreds of people in the sinner's prayer, leave a box of gospel tracts and move on. Now, he did go to new areas with the gospel. We're going to see that in this book. But we also learn that he went back to the areas where he had started churches and he spent more time with them, training them and teaching them and discipling them and equipping them to do the work that he was doing. Then when he was away, what did he do? Prayed for them, wrote letters to them, sent others to them who were like Paul, he invested in them, he loved them, he served them, and he discipled them. Paul loved the ones he served. He evangelized them by investing in them, praying for them, spending time with them, teaching them, and equipping them for ministry. Paul understood that the best way to do evangelism is to produce reproducing disciples. So he would stay with the ones that he had led to Christ and would return to them and write to them and redirect them when they are in the wrong and he would instruct them until they were busy doing what he was doing. And some will hear that and say, oh, that takes too long. That just takes too long. We got to get on the go. We got to grow a thousand miles wide and a half inch deep. That was not Paul's approach. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God used Paul to produce reproducing Christians who would in turn produce reproducing Christians who would in turn produce reproducing Christians. That's what the church is called to do. That's why in our mission statement, it doesn't stop with escort. Though we want to escort people to Christ, we also want them to be established in truth and equipped for ministry so that they'll go out and do likewise. I truly believe that if the church makes this their emphasis in ministry, they're going to make a huge impact. Look at this quote by John MacArthur. He said this, in the long run, the faithful teaching work of a local church will have a greater effect in evangelism than all the evangelistic crusades that come in from the outside not discrediting any crusades god has and is continuing to use them but it's the reproduction of reproducing believers that advances god's kingdom in ways nothing else can i agree completely believers do you have one or two people that you are investing in in this way? Do you have people that you are discipling? What, what, if, what if every believer in here and in this church would make a commitment to disciple someone until they become a reproducing disciple? Imagine the impact that that could have. Evangelism done right is not divorced from discipleship here's the next point for evangelism to be effective it helps to have a solid team 
When we think of evangelism, we often think of it as being a solo sport, don't we? And though there are times when we see God's people having one-on-one encounters in ministry, one of those is in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, a lot of the time there are two or more together doing the work of ministry. There is strength in numbers. Now, you don't want 15 on one. I'm not saying that. But bringing one or two others along with you to confront someone with the gospel of the Lord Jesus is is a great thing. Have one sharing, the other praying. Sometimes one is able to make connections with someone where the other one can't. God can and does use different people in different ways to minister. He does that with the team he assembles in Acts chapter 15. Let's take a look at the team or teams, should I say, plural. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. It was heated. That's what that means. And they separated from each other. And that word separated is a very strong word. That means they didn't shake hands afterwards. Okay, and that's putting it lightly. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, we talked a bit about Mark in Acts chapter 13. He was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas after they made their way through Cyprus to Perga and Mark left, remember? He cut out on Paul and Barnabas and the word translated withdrawn here, it it comes from the root word that means apostasy, okay? Now Mark was not a theological apostate. He did not turn away from the faith, but he did turn away from the ministry. He put his hand to the plow and he looked back. And Barnabas wanted to restore Mark, which is characteristic of Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. He stood up for Mark. He vouched for him. And another reason was, of course, because Mark was family. We learn in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that the two were cousins. And so Barnabas is, is standing up for his cousin, but Paul wasn't having it. Mark had left them high and dry in Perga. Paul didn't want to have to deal with that again. And Barnabas wasn't backing down either. Now, I bet Satan was loving this, don't you? You have these two champions for Christ at odds with one another. But notice what happens. We learn that Barnabas and Mark team up. And Paul chose Silas, another champion for Christ. So instead of one mission team, you got two mission teams. How about that? That's the way God works. Though there is great closure to Paul and Mark's story later on in Scripture, we learn that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. At this time, in this passage, Paul does not want to take a second chance on Mark. And so Barnabas takes him and they go to Cyprus. Again, Barnabas, like Paul, he goes back to the place where they had already been. And Mark was with them all the way through Cyprus as well. So they go back to to 
check on the work there. And my guess is they probably stopped to check in on Sergius Paulus, remember him, in, in Paphos and other fruit there. And Paul takes Silas with him. Now, we just met Silas briefly last week. He was a prophet. He was one of the ones appointed from the Jerusalem council to go to Antioch to report to the Gentiles what had been decided at the Jerusalem council. This was an extremely important task, which shows how much they valued Silas. A few other things about Silas, which show that he's the right man and right to partner with Paul, is that he was a Roman citizen. If you're going to be ministering throughout the Roman Empire, it helps to be a Roman citizen. Both he and Paul were, and we'll learn that helps them a great deal later on when they're in Philippi. He was a Jew. If you're going to be representing the church in Jerusalem, it helps to be Jewish and a part of that church, and he was. Also, if you're going to be preaching and proclaiming that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, it helps to be a prophet. Silas was all of these things, and he was the right man to partner with Paul. So you have two great teams, Barnabas and John Mark and Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas add one more to their team, and I want you to notice how God works this out. This is truly amazing. Paul and Silas did not go the exact route Paul and Barnabas did during their first missionary journey. They bypassed Cyprus. They didn't go through Cyprus. You know why? Because Barnabas and John Mark went through Cyprus. So no need to go there if John Mark and Barnabas are in Cyprus. And so Paul and Silas went through Syria and through Cilicia and went to Derby. Now I want you to see this on the map. Let's look at the map here. The white mark is where John Mark and Barnabas go, okay? So notice here, Paul and Silas don't go to Cyprus. They go the back way to Galatia. So they end up first in, in this area of Lystra and Derby. In there, do you see that? And when they go here first, they have an encounter with a very important individual. Look at who they find there. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Y'all know that name, right? Yeah, they find Timothy there, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, I want you to see this. If Paul and Barnabas would have stayed together, they might have gone the same route they did before, right? That means they wouldn't have uh, got to Lystra and Derby until the end of, of their trip through Galatia. So they would have picked Timothy up at the end instead of picking him up at the beginning. See how God works that out? They pick him up at the beginning, and he goes on with them and continues on in ministry. We see God doing a work here. And Timothy joins Paul and Silas. And Timothy was another awesome servant of the Lord Jesus. Paul poured into Timothy, and Timothy got to the point where he looked as much like Jesus as Paul did. So much so that Paul could say, me sending Timothy is the same as me going to you. And this enabled Paul to duplicate his ministry by sending Timothy where he could not go. And even greater fruit came as a result of this. How awesome is that? Believers, again, we need to be pouring our lives into each other in this way. 
If you're further along spiritually than others, if you're more advanced in the faith, you need to be pouring your life into new believers. And new believers, to grow in godliness, you need to be seeking out more mature believers to look to and to emulate so that our church can move to, together to become more like Christ so that we can make an impact in this community and for God's kingdom, for his glory. So Timothy becomes a great servant of the Lord Jesus. It also makes sense that God would choose Timothy to join with Paul and Silas because of his background. He's from the Roman Empire. He's a half Gentile, half Jewish. So he's got one foot in the door with the Gentiles, and they're going to minister to a lot of Gentiles. But he, he also, there is potential there for him to be able to minister to the Jews as well. All right? Another reason Timothy was a, a great candidate to minister alongside the Apostle Paul is because he was a man of great integrity. We're told in Acts chapter 16, verse 2. Look at it with me. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And because of that, Paul wanted Timothy to join him in ministry. So God assembles two great teams here, right? Barnabas and John Mark and Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So for evangelism to be effective, it helps to have a solid team. Next point. For evangelism to be effective, one should meet people where they are to effectively bring them to Jesus. Notice what Paul does to Timothy. This is very interesting. We're told in verse 3, Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, places where they were going to minister. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this is very, very interesting on the heels of the Jerusalem council. Am I right? Remember last week in Acts 15, we're talking about the Jerusalem council. And one of the main discussions at this council is whether or not new Gentile Christians should be circumcised. And it was determined that they did not have to be. So let me ask you this. Is Paul going against that ruling here by circumcising Timothy? And if not, what's he doing? Let's look at it. There's an important phrase that Luke mentions here that explains Paul's actions. Luke says he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Paul circumcised Timothy so that there would be no barriers between him and the Jewish people. You see, because Timothy was half Jewish, not being circumcised communicated to the Jews that he had rejected his Jewish side and had embraced his pagan Gentile half. And Paul knew that would make it difficult for Timothy to minister to the Jews. So he circumcised Timothy so that Timothy would have no barriers when taking the gospel to the Jews. And Paul says something similar about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. You know this passage, right? To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. Right? And then he goes on. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Why, Paul? I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, Paul says. And Paul here is teaching Timothy that vital lesson. Now, how does this apply to us? Are we to change things physically? 
about ourselves for the purpose of ministry? Not necessarily. Some have. But that's not the only application to be made here. As we've said before in here, an effective way to minister to people is to meet them where they are so that you can take them from where they are and effectively lead them to Jesus. And if there are any roadblocks in the way, remove those without compromising yourself morally, of course, but be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. That's the application to be made here. That's evangelism done well. Next point. For evangelism to be effective, the right message must be shared. That's important, isn't it? Very important. Look at verses 4 through 5. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. To be effective in evangelism, it's vital that we share the right message. And though they did share the ruling at the Jerusalem council, they shared the gospel message here. That's how those were added to the church. Notice it says they went through the cities and delivered to them the decisions that had been made, had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They traveled through the cities of Galatia and shared with them what had been decided at the Jerusalem council and what had been decided. Acts chapter 15 verse 11 that were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. They, they preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation comes by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And we're told that the churches in that region, they were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The gospel was central to the, the apostles' message and ministry. And as a result, lost people came to Jesus and the church was built up and matured spiritually. That's what they did. That's what happened in Galatia. That's what needs to be happening today in our churches. We're not to move beyond the gospel. You've heard me say that before, right? We're to move deeper into our knowledge of the gospel. It's what we all need. Non-believers and believers need the gospel. Non-believers need it to be saved. Believers need it to be all that God has called us to be. So we're to continue to go back to the gospel and back to the gospel and back to the gospel. That's what Paul did when he went back to these areas. He went back to these areas and went back to the gospel. Lost were saved and the churches were built up and matured. One last thing. For evangelism to be effective, this is very, very important. It must be spirit-led. So we've said many times in this study, the Spirit of God is the true power behind this great work in the book of Acts. He is the one at work in and through his people, and if he is not in it, if he is not behind the work that we do and God's people do in ministry, no fruit will come from it. It doesn't matter if you're a Barnabas or a John Mark or Paul, Silas, and Timothy or all of them combined or something better altogether. If the Spirit is not in it, if the Spirit is not guiding and directing and empowering, nothing good will come from it. It's vital that we see our need to be led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit in ministry. Look at verses 6 through 10. 
And we're going to discuss this in more detail next week, but I want you to see this here. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia. Notice he mentions we there, so we assume that Luke is joining them here to go to Europe. You see that? Concluding that God had called us, there's Luke referring to himself as well, to preach the gospel to them. All right. There there are many places Paul and others wanted to go in ministry. Many things that they wanted to do. But there were times when God closed the door on them. And he does that at times, doesn't he? Closes the door. Closes the door on certain things with us. And at times, he opens doors in, in places we weren't expecting. I can honestly tell you that coming out of seminary, I had no idea I was going to be serving in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and then Jacksonville, Texas. I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was going to be here, but God opened the door for me in ministry, and there were doors that he will open for you. And it may not be the door you're wanting to go through or the door you're waiting to open, but it's the door you need to go through. But what we learn from Paul here is we're to be faithful where God has us and where God leads us and to even pursue certain things that interest us, that are good things until that door shuts. We see that here with with Paul and others, the others here. And it doesn't matter what your vocation is either. I'm not just talking about full-time ministers here. Listen, wherever God has you, believers... That is where he wants you to minister. Your first calling, your first priority is to be our mission statement. Christ's great commission to escort people to Christ, establish them in truth, and equip them for ministry. You're to be representing Christ and sharing him and showing him to people in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in your family, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your classmates. You're to be pouring into people. You are to be investing in them and discipling them. You are to get discipled, and then you are to be making disciples. That's a calling on all of us as believers. Now, first things first. Before you can do that, you have to first be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of his. You have to be forgiven of your sin. You have to be made right with God through Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you can honestly say you're not a disciple of Jesus. You've not been escorted to Christ. Christ is not the Lord of your life. But maybe you're here this morning and you can honestly say you want to be. If that's the case, I'm going to ask you to consider making a serious commitment this morning. A commitment that will change the course of your life forever in the best way way 
Scripture is clear that God created us in his likeness, in his image, for himself to bring glory to him. The problem is we turned away from that. We went against God. We turned against him. And because God is a righteous and holy God, which means he cannot be okay with that which is opposed to his righteousness, he is, he is opposed to sin. And that's bad news for us because we're sinners. That means he's necessarily opposed to us. We've been separated from him in our sin. But God tells us also in his word, the best news ever. That's why it's called the gospel. The euangelion, the good news. He tells us in his word, though we are sinners, God demonstrates his great love for us by reaching out to us again through the person and work of his son, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. God sent his son Jesus to do what we can never do, to live the perfect life we could never live to fulfill all righteousness. And he laid his life down for us, dying the death. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. He was struck down by God for us. And he was raised again on the third day so that we, through Jesus, through his person and work, through his life, death, and resurrection, could be forgiven of sin, made right with God, made a child of God's, be raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. That's what he's done for us. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to give your life up and over to Jesus. No better time than right now. I invite you, come to him by turning from your sin. Trust in God's son, Jesus, alone for your salvation and be saved. Let's pray.